0: For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen.
1: Oh, yes. I miss you. Love you, brother. All right. And the elders are glad to be back from our trip to the CCEF counseling conference in Virginia. And I want to thank you Uh, as a church, for being so hospitable to Kevin Ritter last week. He's been talking all week about this church, loves you all, and just enjoyed his time here immensely. So thank you for your love for him. He also wants our recipe for our communion bread, and uh, they're going to be following our lead on that. But um, it is good to to be back. Now, as we see in this title, uh, How to Be Saved, that's the title. Very simple, right? How to be saved. Now, up to this point in our study uh, of the book of Romans, Paul has plumbed the depths, right? He's plumbed the depths of God's sovereignty in our salvation, uh, showing us salvation from God's standpoint, right? Basically telling us that it is God who initiates his wrath on sinners. It is God also who initiates his grace by Christ coming to the world. It's also God who, before the foundation of the world, elected to save a people. It is God who crushed his son on the cross as payment for our sins. It is God who calls us to himself. It is God who secures us with his Holy Spirit. It is God who glorifies us one day in heaven. So Paul has been playing up to this point that salvation is of the Lord. He's he's shown us our salvation from God's standpoint. But today, today, in in, in chapter 10, he deals with salvation from the human standpoint. And so, yeah, my, my title then, you could add the words, How to be saved, humanly speaking. How to be saved, humanly speaking. Now, some would say, ah, this seems confusing. So one minute you're telling us the Bible says that it's God who chose us, and he came after us, and he pursues us, and he brings us to himself, and it's all him. But now you're saying... There's a human part to this as well. And yes, the answer is yes. And we've given a word for that. It's an antinomy. That's, that's a theological word, antinomy, that means there are two truths that seem to be di- directly opposed. You mean God is sovereign in our salvation, and yet man is responsible to believe? Yes, and they're both true. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And today, after weeks, I know, uh, weeks of looking at the sovereign side of our salvation that it's all of God this week we will look at the human side and simply look at a how to how to be saved how many of you go online i do this now youtube saves me multiple times when i'm doing a project anybody how to how to install a toilet how to how to fix a, a cabinet how to do this how to how to make your wife happy you know, I'm just, you know on and on and on there's how to videos And literally, that's what we're talking about from the human standpoint today, how to be saved. That's what Paul's going to deal with. And so let's let's notice this. And by the way, I I do want to say in the very start, that word saved is a good word. It's a necessary and good word. I know for many years, people shied away from using that as Christians, uh, using other uh, metaphors and and adjectives to explain that they're in a, well, some would say things like, well, I'm in a relationship with God, right? Um, And and now listen, the gospel, the message of the gospel reveals man's most essential and necessary need, right? Three times in our text, by the way, that word saved is used. So this is an important word, saved. That is man's greatest need. I mean, think about this. Our, our, Our most essential need is not that we be made religious. That's not our most essential need. We, we don't simply need to be in a relationship with God. That's what people begin to use instead of saying, Well, I'm saved. Are you saved? No, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. And kind of, I get it. I understand. It sounds a little funny sometimes. It's like they're dating Jesus. Hope he didn't break up with you. But, I'm just, uh, you know, but, but we do not simply need to be just in a relationship. We do, our, our greatest need is not simply to belong. Many churches you go into, it says, welcome home, you belong here. This is where you belong, you're one of us. But that's not the biggest need, just to feel like I belong somewhere. We don't simply need to feel happy and good about ourselves. That's another message many churches give, just as long as you feel happy about yourself, and feel good about yourself. No, our greatest need, folks, is that we need to be saved, and, and, and the reason I'm stressing this so much is that until a person understands the urgency, and the need for redemption, for salvation, for rescue from their sin, they're doomed. they You can have all these other things. There are many people. There are countless people today in churches around America that feel like they belong in that group of people. The koanas can make you feel like you belong. Social clubs can make you feel like you belong. You can be in relationships with a lot of people. You can feel happy about yourself for a myriad of reasons. And yet, miss the fact that you need to be saved because you you are in horrible shape. You are under the wrath of God, a sinner that needs salvation. This word saved is a good and necessary word. Matter of fact, that word saved explains the reason Jesus came in the first place. This is the language the Bible uses to explain Jesus' ministry in the world in the first place. Luke 19, verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You see the urgency there. There's an urgent need. We're lost. We need to be saved. Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. There's an urgent need, and the gospel is plain about it, and we have stopped preaching it forcefully, and instead we've gone to moral therapeutic deism and just decided, that oh, Jesus came to seek and to make people feel that they belong to a club. No, he came to save. We have a desperate need. Salvation. So, if... Being saved is the most essential need we have. And why is that? Because it's only after you are saved by God's grace that you are in a relationship with God. It's only after you've been saved and rescued by Christ and his atoning blood and work for you that you are in a relationship with God, that you belong to the family of God, that you now can feel good about who you are in Christ So it's so vital that we understand that. So if being saved is the most important need and the most essential need that a person has, how is a person saved? And that's what Paul looks at today. So this message, again, as it's been over the past few weeks, we're just going to deal with a quick truth. So I ask you to just give me your attention. We're not going to be long, but here's what Paul lays out for us. He gives us two options today. When it comes to being saved Rescued from the wrath of God Rescued from our sin Made right with God Two options Verse 5 says For Moses writes about the righteousness That is based on the law There's option number one The option that Moses wrote about And that option is Righteousness based on the law How's that option work you ask What's that option Righteousness based on the law How's it work? Well, the person who does the commandments Shall live by them That's how it works Oh, you mean that's it? God gives me a few rules I keep those rules And I live That's exactly what it is Yeah, that's option number one It's called the covenant of works It's a conditional covenant God offers righteousness through a perfect Holy law and commands us to keep every one of them perfectly. And if we live by them, then we'll live. If we keep them, we'll live by them. This is a quotation that Paul is using from Leviticus chapter 18. Let's let's look at that. Leviticus chapter 18 verses four and five says this. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live because of them or by them or because he kept them. I am the Lord. That's covenant language. He's giving a a promise. He's giving a condition. I am the Lord your God. Here's my law. Here's my commands. Here's my statutes. Live by them, by every one of them. You keep them and you'll have life. I am the Lord God. I, I put my name upon that covenant. That's the covenant of works. Now listen, listen to this. Now, if that's sounding if that's attractive to somebody today, let's continue to look at this then. We need to look at this some more. Then if that's attractive to you, and you think, like, oh yeah, that's good. I can do, I can be religious and good and moral and keep the ten. Well, this verse in Leviticus is smack dab in the middle of what we call the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's right in the middle right in the middle. And, 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 and it's very interesting, the Pentateuch not only gives us the Ten Commandments, but it lays out over 600 other commandments connected to keeping the Ten. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. As you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, If you've ever read through your Bible in a year and you're going through that program, there are laws and commands upon commands upon commands. And yes, your head feels like it's swimming. I believe that God has sovereignly placed those commands and laws and statutes in his word to purposely overwhelm us. To show us that if you're going to keep my perfection, that's what the law is. The, the, The commands, the ten commandments and all of the commandments that we need as humans to try to come close to keeping them simply represents who God is. The law is God in commands. He's perfect. He, he's, he's perfect. And he tells us, you want to be with me? Be perfect. Design perfect. Keep my law. Every one of them. All 600 other commands connected to keeping the 10 Meaning, again, this deals with our emotions, our heart as we're doing something. It's not just a simple, here's 10 rules, I'll keep those 10 rules. It's deeper than that. It's how I keep those rules, why I keep those rules, with what heart am I keeping those rules, how consistently, and it's complete, by the way. I have to completely, all of my life, keep every commandment of God to love my neighbor as myself, to do unto others as I would do unto myself, not to lust, not to be greedy, not to steal, not to bear false witness, not to lie about somebody, not to gossip, all, on and on it goes, and I have to do it with a perfect heart. Whew. You still like that option? The point is this folks. Keeping all of God's commandments is simply unattainable. That first option is unattainable to sinful humans. Impossible. It will never happen. That's why Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 3 beginning of verse 10, "For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse." Paul knew that language. He understood the language of Leviticus when it says, if you keep my law, you'll live because that's what his early life was all about. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the the most religious guy you ever want to meet, probably the most moral neighbor you could ever have because he was striving in his life to keep all those laws. He thought he could do it. But he understands those laws are here To show us how condemned we are and how in need of a savior we are. How we are desperate for someone else to keep that law because we can't. That's why in Galatians 3.10 he says, For all who rely on the works of the law, you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. All of them, all the time. Therefore, Paul says, it's evident. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. He inserts there, which we're going to get to that. That's glorious. But he, can, he contrasts that with back to the law. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the law says the one who does them shall live by them. Do you see, again, it's such a weight. The one who does them, the one who performs... Consistently and perfectly throughout their life can have life, everlasting life. What a curse upon us! Because if you break even one of them, you bear the wrath and the penalty of all of them. So, hopefully, by now you're saying, Got another option, Paul? Is there another, something else to help us? (laughs) It's kind of like the Joe, I can't help it, guys. Maybe this will help. A fellow was walking along a path one day on a high, steep a ledge of, of a cliff of a mountain. And he loses his footing and he slips. He's falling off the edge. I mean, it's very high. But he grabs a tree root and he's hanging on for dear life. And he hollers up and says, Help! Is anybody up there? And he hears somebody say, Yes. Let go and trust me. He says, is anybody else up there? (laughs) And that's where we are when we see the reality of what Paul is saying here. When we realize there is no hope in option number one, we cry out, is there option number two? And by God's grace, there is. And this is what Paul's been talking about all through Romans, and now he brings it right home to each individual Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, only God can save us. It's all up to him. But yet we are human beings. We're not the sovereign God. So Paul now deals with each individual on their level. And in verse 6, he says this, but, and you know me, I love the buts of the Bible. For all have sinned, but the grace of God, right? Right? but the righteousness based on faith says so here it is option number two says something different now he gets a little complicated here explaining it but we'll talk about that but the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring up Christ from the dead. An easy way to look at that is he's saying we, we can't in our effort and through our work somehow ascend to heaven and bring Christ to us or somehow in our effort raise Jesus from the dead or, or, or something to that effect. Literally though, it says this. But what does he say? So that's what it, he goes back to that again. But, but the righteousness based on faith says, what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach to you or proclaim to you. This word of faith, this gospel message that you are to put your faith in. It's pretty interesting because this is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Especially, Paul only uses the part where it says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Now, also in Deuteronomy, Moses is likening the law and saying, You don't have to climb up the highest mountain and try to bring the law to you. You don't have to swim the deepest oceans and try to retrieve uh, the law of righteousness. No, it's near you. So that was what Moses was saying in his context of Deuteronomy. God has revealed his law to you. But now Paul is using that to say, oh, but the fulfillment of that law is so much sweeter and better. It's not unattainable. It's not beyond access like perfection. He, here, here's the glory of this. Faith, unlike the law, tells us that Christ is our salvation. And, and unlike the law, he is not unattainable, he is not unaccessible, but he is very near to you. That's, the new, that's what uh, we take away from, from the Deuteronomy quote and from what Paul is saying in Romans. His point there is, is that we do not need Nor could we climb Mount Sinai and keep every law of God in our own strength. We can't do it. We don't need to. This is the glorious news. We don't need to climb Mount Sinai and attempt to keep all of God's commands. Only God, here's the the news flash for all of us, only God can keep God's commands. That's what the law is really all about, folks, is to show us how holy and perfect God is. And he lays this law out and says, keep that. And then we realize... Who do you think we are? God? Exactly. Only God can keep God's commands. That's why Jesus, the God-man, came into this world to live that perfect life for us. Only he could keep all of God's commands, and he did. We don't have to, and we can't. It's glorious. We don't need to descend into the abyss of brokenness and death and guilt and suffering. We we don't need to. Jesus did that for us when he went to the cross. That's what Paul's saying. So all of this work and this pain and this anguish over our sin and this trying to keep the law and be good enough. Paul's simply saying, no, that's what the law tells you to do. That's that's a righteousness that you're trying to achieve by good works and law keeping. But faith says it's all found in Christ. The difference between the two options basically is this. Here it is. The difference between these two options, law and faith, is this. One says, I must do it. And the other says, Christ has done it the difference. I mean, when we're talking to somebody, this is what we want them to understand. When we're trying to share our faith with people, which we're commanded to do, the main thing we're trying to get them to see is, hey, your your goodness, your religion, your, your church attendance, all these, none of that is good enough. Stop trying to do it and understand that Jesus has done it. And then follow what Romans 10, 9 says. Here it is. How to be saved. 101 by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, one of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Hmm. Now, we have to look at this because there's been some misinterpretation here, some misunderstanding. Some sometimes believe in slogan salvation, I call it, slogan salvation. If I say the right slogan, then I'm saved, right? Because it says confess with my mouth. So I better be sure I say the right word. As long as I say the right slogan, then I'm saved. That's not what this is saying. Notice what it's saying. And and we also, a good way to understand this is by realizing that the word confess and believe are inseparably connected. If you confess, but let's notice what we're confessing with our mouth. We're confessing that Jesus is Lord. That's a confession that can only be made after I have believed in my heart that God's raised him from the dead. And these work in tandem. The confession that Jesus is Lord is not just saying the name of Jesus. You cannot say Jesus is Lord without saying I am his slave. Do you see that? When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is my Lord, you're also confessing that I am dead to myself and he owns me. He's my master. I'm his servant. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is the oldest Christian creed in the Bible. This is the, this is the creed. That the church said, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's the gospel. We, be, we believe in our heart by faith that Jesus has done exactly what he came to do. Live the perfect life, keeping the law of God, going to the cross, dying for us, going into the abyss of death and hell and sin for us, and then conquering all of it and rising again. So those are inseparable. And and, and he goes on to explain it a little bit more in verses 10 and 11. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And Paul's been talking about justification all through Romans. To be justified is to be made right in the sight of God. To be made just as if I'd never sinned. God proclaims that about us when we by faith rest in his Son and the perfection of his work for us. Again, how is one justified then? If I can't keep the law, if I can't be good enough, how am I ever justified then? Well, with the heart, I believe. I believe something about what God has promised. And then with my mouth, one confesses. So look, here, let's read it again together, put it all together. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses because he's saved. He is saved, yes, and he is saved, yes. But it all works together. There's no confessing with my mouth until I have believed and been justified by faith in my heart. They work in tandem together. For the scripture says, and here's how I know that it's talking about the idea that my confession is is an unashamed confession of my faith in christ not ashamed of it because he says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame or what he has just said everyone who believes will confess you see that They're 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 linked i like what one of the divines of old said one great preacher theologian of the past Confession without belief would be vain. Confession without belief is vain. It's useless. And belief without confession would be fake. Do do we understand? If I confess and I talk about Jesus, but I don't believe in my heart that I'm a sinner. And I'm under God's wrath, and that only Christ and his obedience to the law and his obedience in death and his resurrection can save me, I don't be- Then it's useless. I can talk all day about how I love Jesus, but I've not believed in my heart. I've not, I've not believed the gospel. I'm not resting on the truth of who Christ is. So therefore, confession without belief is vain. And yet, belief without confession, what confession, what if I say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And yet there's no confession. That literally the word confession means to live out. Not just by word but by deed. What I say I believe. What well, if I say I believe in Jesus but there's no change in my life and I don't confess him regularly. I don't speak about him, but rather I'm ashamed of him, which is the opposite of confessing him. Then my belief is fake. That's strong language but it's it's what Paul's saying here. It's also what James is saying. Faith without works is dead. That's what James meant. You say you have faith, you say you believe, and yet there's no change in your life, there's no confessing through through your actions, then that faith is fake. So here's what we're seeing, folks. How is a person saved? In your heart, in your very being, you believe what God says in his word, that you are a sinner. You believe that. That's, the first, that's where the gospel starts. The gospel doesn't start with me believing in God. It starts with me believing that I have offended God, that I am in a bad way. That's why I began this whole sermon by talking about the importance of the word saved and the urgency in that word. We don't even understand it, folks. We, we are so inundated by this world that we do not think in an eternal perspective We do not understand that the wrath of God is eternally resting on our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, that people are in the city of doom and don't even know it. They're asleep in their religiosity and in their good works, but they don't realize they're damned by a holy God that they've offended. So the first thing that Paul is saying here is that in our very heart, we believe that we're doomed. We believe and know that we can't keep his law. But we also believe that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we rest everything we have on his perfection and his complete sacrifice and his righteousness for us. That's what we believe in our heart. And you cannot genuinely believe that in your heart and not confess it with your mouth and your actions in your life. I mean, this, folks, Paul goes on to say now in the last two verses of our text, this is the only way to be saved. This is the only way to be saved for all people, for all time, everywhere. Period. All roads do not lead to heaven. The gospel is exclusive, not all-inclusive. This is the message of God. This is his word. This is what Paul's laying out for us. Look what he at. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Look what Paul says. Romans 10, 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That is everybody. Everybody. At the time Paul is writing, you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. That's every body on earth there is no distinction between jew and greek for the same lord is lord of all bestowing his riches he bestows his grace his forgiveness his mercy his righteousness on who on all who call on him For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we can add, and only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. None else. There is no other way for us to be made right in the sight of God. People say it's no fair, and it's, 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 it's narrow-minded, and, and on and on, the... excuses go and and the skeptics talk but man alive why can't we see the beauty of the love of God instead of scrutinizing him for being a God who hates sin what do you expect he's holy he's holy of course he hates sin instead of questioning that and being grumbly about it why can't we see the beauty in the fact that that holy God crushed his son to redeem a people that do not deserve it. And all who call out for rescue out of desperation, save me, Lord, I believe you're my only hope, shall be saved. That's what Paul's saying here. And I know that many will say, How does that correspond with the doctrine of election? How can you believe in the sovereign grace of God and the doctrines of sovereign grace and say, anybody who believes shall be saved i've had people sit in my office look at me and say you cannot believe election you cannot believe predestination predestination and actually with a with a good heart tell somebody that if they would call upon the name of the lord they could be saved which i answered, yes i can that's the only answer yes yes we can because that's what the bible teaches You see, both of these things are true. We don't throw one out for the other when they're both equally revealed in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, because I do believe that God has a people to save, I more confidently run around this world hollering at the top of my lungs, whoever believes on the Lord will be saved because I know God will save somebody. I know, I don't know who they are. Just like Spurgeon said, whenever whenever I preach this, when he said, the elect do not have an E written on their backs. If they did, he said, I would run around lifting shirts. (laughs) But instead, I run around proclaiming, for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because that's how God has chosen to save his people. And that is what we must do. And if you're sitting here today, you can worry about all these other things and be skeptic about it, but that's that's just a satanic diversion. Here's what Paul does in chapter 10. He brings the scope of salvation, he narrows it from the sovereignty of God to the responsibility of an individual who understands or hears at least, you're a sinner. You are under the wrath of a holy God and there is no hope in your religion or your law keeping or your righteous deeds. The only hope is in Christ. He fulfills all the law and he kept it for you. And then he went to the cross and he took the the, the penalty of your law breaking. So the penalty of your law breaking has been paid by Christ. The righteousness of keeping the law has been kept by Christ. And your only hope is to believe in your heart that that message is true. Will you do that today? If you're here, that word "call," by the way, "epikaleo," has this urgency to cry out for help. Literally, is what that means. That's what Paul's saying: for everyone who cries out for help, shall be saved. And that crying out for help, of course, in the context, is that cry to know that I am hopelessly lost and I need. Jesus. And I trust him and him alone. So again, just real quick. Conclusion. The way to be saved, Paul lays out for us. First option, uh, unattainable, right? The first option, keep the law, unattainable. Second option, very accessible because he is near you. Isn't this glorious? That's, that, those words are so important to us. The Savior is near you. Salvation is near us. Not unattainable, on Mount Sinai, where we got to try to keep the law. No, he's near. He, he descended to us. He condescended to us, and he is near us. This is glorious, that language, by the way, when it says the word is near. Now, I'm not jumping too far into this Christological interpretation, but Moses used the word, the word is near you. Moses said that back in the day. and then Paul, of course, that's the only part he quoted was the word is near and what is the significance of that? I think it's simply this. 1 John chapter 1. says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's near us. Salvation is found. In Christ alone. And he's here for anybody who will repent and call out for him. You will be saved.